Hello, and welcome back to the Rewatch Rewind. My name is Jane, and this is the podcast where I count down my top 40 most frequently rewatched movies in a 20-year period. Today, I will be discussing number 19 on my list, RKO and Vanguard Films' 1946 spy drama Notorious, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written by Ben Hecht, and starring Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, and Claude Rains. After her father is convicted of being a Nazi spy, party girl Alicia Huberman, Ingrid Bergman, is recruited by American agent Devlin, Cary Grant, to help infiltrate an organization of Nazi scientists in Brazil. Alicia and Devlin quickly fall for each other before learning that Alicia's job is to seduce Alexander Sebastian, Claude Rains, a friend of her father's whose house seems to be a current Nazi headquarters, which complicates Alicia and Devlin's relationship. Notorious is a fascinating, well-crafted, underrated gem of a movie that not nearly enough people talk about, so I was delighted when I learned that my friend James Hafel is also a fan of it. We had a very fun conversation that I hope you will enjoy, but before we get into that, I want to warn you that we do thoroughly spoil the plot, which probably isn't surprising if you've listened to other episodes, because I usually spoil the movies I talk about, but Alfred Hitchcock was the master of suspense, which means that spoiling his movies does kind of ruin them more than spoiling a typical movie does. So if you haven't seen Notorious and think you might want to, I would highly recommend watching it before listening. It's currently available on YouTube. Anyway, here's our conversation. Proceed at your own risk. Hi, James. Hey, Jane. How's it going? Good. How are you? Oh, I'm all right. Just chilling on this fine day. Ready to talk about Notorious. Yes, Notorious. The first Hitchcock movie that I'll be talking about on this podcast. Oh, there are more? Yes. Well, one more. (laughs) I have a hunch I know what it is. (laughs) Yeah, I would say that Notorious probably is my second favorite Hitchcock movie, so uh, it's appropriate that it's my second most watched. Yeah, that would make sense. Cary Grant was in four Hitchcock movies, and two of them are like my favorites, and two of them are like my least favorites, so it's... It's interesting. Shall we talk about this? the second favorite one, though, I suppose? Yes. So, Notorious, I was looking back to find out when I first watched it, and I think I had, like, this major Hitchcock phase when I was, like, 14, 15-ish. I watched, like, a ton of Hitchcock movies for the first time. And so I was I was looking at my, my little notebook where I wrote them down. <laughs> I'm going to show you. The audience can't see, but there's this this notebook where I wrote down my movies. And so I have like this section here where it's like Shadow of a Doubt, Family Plot, Strangers on a Train, Rebecca Notorious. I mean, that's a damn good lineup. <laughs> yeah, that was that was me being introduced to. I think I had seen a couple or at least one before I'd seen my favorite one first. That was the first Hitchcock movie I watched was the, the one that I'll be talking about later. <laughs> um, but yeah, I. I think I was just getting a bunch from the library and just like sort of starting to devour his work. Well, I think every young uh, person who considers himself a movie buff uh, goes through a Hitchcock uh, phase every so often. So that's got to be uh, bound to happen eventually. Yeah. Do you remember when you first watched it? I was introduced to it actually in uh, college. It was very late to the game with this one. But the class was for, um, it was called Gender and Sexuality in Hitchcock. And... The professor kind of picked out specific movies within Hitchcock's canon that like had those issues and ideas sort of in the center stage. And turns out there's a surprising number of them that do. 
And uh, when we got to this one, A, I'd never heard of it, but he introduced it with like, this is kind of like a considered a forgotten gem among Hitchcock enthusiasts. And I think that's fair because like this movie doesn't really have, I don't think the cultural permeation that movies like Psycho and Vertigo have, but I think it stands on the shoulders with them. And I remember watching it and I don't think I was like, I was aware of Cary Grant at this point, but I wasn't really like a fan of his, I wouldn't say. But then when I watched this, I was like, God damn, he's really good at acting. Like this is a character who would be really difficult to play and he just nails it. So I, that was kind of like started my uh, really big appreciation for Cary Grant. And then when I met you, which was after that, I pretty sure I was like, Oh damn, this is, great i got a fellow cary grant fan to talk with yeah well i was very excited because i'm used to sort of introducing cary grant to people and so it was fun to meet you and be like oh someone who's already a fan nice <laughs> actually now that i think about it i had watched north by northwest but i didn't really under like i didn't really get cary grant from that point i was just like oh he's just like a you know rather attractive looking old hollywood actor great but like this one i was like oh damn he's good <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's it's very different i mean he's a very different character in those and i think it's interesting because most of the cary grant movies that i've talked about so far are comedies mm -hmm. and i feel like i tend to enjoy him more when he's being silly like i i enjoy him more in comedic roles and sometimes in dramatic roles i feel like they don't quite work like have you seen an affair to remember i haven't i've heard of it yeah so it's like a really famous movie I don't feel like the end of that movie works. Like, mm. I don't believe that he's sincere at the end of that movie for some reason. Like, I just, I feel like maybe I've seen him in too many comedies, but I feel like you can't, a lot of times you can't really take him seriously. Like, he always sort of has a little joke. And mm. what I think is so interesting is like, Notorious is a dramatic role and I feel like he's really good in it. Oh, and yeah. I don't know that I think he's as good in other dramas so that's part of why I enjoy this movie is it's like so different from the Cary Grant movies I usually watch and enjoy. Indeed. Although you can see glimpses of like what made him like such a charming comedic leading man in this role. But whenever he's doing that, it's almost always when he's like trying to fool specifically Alex, like he's trying to fool Alex into thinking that something else is going on when it's not actually what the subject of his conversations is about. So. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. Another thing that I enjoy about Cary Grant movies is that a lot of times the woman is really the lead. Mm -hmm. um, not always, obviously, like North by Northwest is very much oh, yeah, Cary Grant. Yeah. In North by Northwest, the female lead doesn't even show up until like 45 minutes into the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but Notorious, like Ingrid Bergman's character is the lead. Yeah. It's really more Ingrid Bergman. And I love her. She's great. And yep. in this movie, she like, totally kills it yeah well i have a couple of notes about ingrid bergman specifically in regards to that so i'll let you finish but i'll go on to that afterwards i just think that she absolutely gets this character oh, yeah. and like just is completely into it it's also very funny to me having watched a lot of ingrid bergman movies how often she's just sort of like whatever european nationality you need her to be <laughs> i mean she was swedish but in this case she's playing like a German-American 
Yeah, and I believe that her mother was German, and she was she was fluent in like five languages. So it's yeah. like she knew German, but it's yeah. just really funny to be like, yeah, okay, she can be German in this movie. She can be Italian. She can be what whatever. She can be Russian. She was Anastasia. <laughs> like whatever European nationality you need her to be. I mean, that seems like that was the case for a lot of European actresses of that era. I'm sure, especially the ones that were in America. She has a vague accent. <laughs> She's European of some kind. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I, one of the main reasons I keep revisiting this movie is just because I love her performance so much. Oh yeah. So what I was going to say was, okay, so the two male leads, um, Cary Grant and uh, Claude Rains, their characters, essentially those two are playing like kind of opposite the types that they had been cast in at that point. Like Cary Grant's playing like a kind of moody, sulky, you know, leading guy who's kind of a bad boy almost in some respects and claude rains is playing a respectable villain but he's also playing a, a villain who seems to have take things very hard in the chest and like is very sensitive and jealous and you know not as secure as maybe a lot of his other roles were and a lot of his other villainous roles so there's that there's that kind of inversion there of their types and then but ingrid bergman is basically playing like exactly the type that she had been playing for her entire career it's like but it's just like the perfect role of, for her because, like you say, she gets this role perfectly and she's just able to find all the little nuances to make Alicia real. Like you can always see like the moments where she's really trying to be happy and then some situation happens where it's just like squashed completely and she just has to default back into, okay, I guess I'm just like, a, you know, I don't want to use this word, but it's the only word coming to mind, like a, like a slutty uh young woman trying to like you know sleep with everybody i can and that's just like her protective mask and it's just you can see that go on and off so perfectly up throughout the entire movie and the other thing i wanted to say is i watched the uh, special features on criterion that included like a whole um interview style documentary with people near and close to the movie and uh they had a one with peter bagdanovich where he talked about uh he had talked to Cary grant about this movie and asked him what he thought about it and Cary grant was like by the way, Peter Bogdanovich does amazing impressions, but um, he was like, oh yeah, that was the one that uh, Hitch threw to, threw to Ingrid. And Peter Bogdanovich was like, oh, that's a very interesting way to think about this movie, but it's true. Like Ingrid Bergman is just perfect for this role. So Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's really interesting because like, yes, she played characters like this a lot, but at that point, she had more of a reputation of being like, more pure and and like she'd played like nuns and stuff mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was before the whole scandal with because like with, uh, there was a huge leaving. scandal in the middle of her career that she had an affair and got pregnant when yep. she was married to somebody else with yep. with Rosalini and um but that hadn't happened yet at this point and so I think it's kind of funny because it's like everybody called her a slut after this <laughs> and also I think it's really interesting like Hitchcock did this a lot, like pushing the boundaries of production codes. Oh, yeah. Because like you couldn't say like, oh, she's a slut in right. 1946 <laughs> in a movie. But like that's very heavily implied. Like yeah. that's why she's notorious. And like originally, I think the ending was going to be that she was going to die mm -hmm. and they were going to show people looking at an article about her death and being like, mm -hmm. oh, she was notorious. And that's why it was called that. But then, of course, they made the ending a little happier than that. I mean, a little. <laughs> she doesn't die that no, we know of. No, but someone dies. 
definitely someone does. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he kind of has it coming. That's another, like, okay. So, yeah, it's the Angry Bird movie, but Claude Rains mm-hmm. is so good, too, in this, yeah. like, villain that's actually kind of sympathetic. Like, you feel bad for him, even mm-hmm. though he's a Nazi. Like, he's bad. Yes. But, like, he really does love Alicia. Like, he is in love with her, and she totally breaks his heart. Obviously, like, that's her job. But, yeah. <laughs> like, you feel bad for him at the end when it's, like, he's clearly going to die. Mm-hmm. I had a note that going back to really quickly to Alicia's, like uh, you were saying that you can't say she's a slut, but there was a line that she says in that conversation with Devlin at the horse race where she's like, you can add Alex to my list of playmates. I have no idea how they managed to get that line past the Hayes code. Like that one was like, that's pretty like clear what she's talking about. And you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, but that that line in itself, like, if you said it out of context, maybe, like, playmate could be innocent, but, like... She's a, you know, 20-something woman. <laughs> it is it is very clear what she means by that. But, yeah, I'm trying to go back to my uh, Claude Rains notes real quick. Yeah, I kind of already mentioned what I was my primary note, but just the idea that there's this inversion of, like, what kind of role that Claude Rains and Cary Grant are playing because like I feel like if you had switched their roles that they might have actually played it in a way that fit more their like established personas at the time but it works so much better that they're doing it in the way that they are because it's just like they're just so perfect for those roles yeah and like you said Claude Rains is just he's amazing in everything right but he wasn't really known for playing like characters who kind of you can see their heart like he was known for playing very cold dispassionate Mm-hmm. kind of villains like he's i mean maybe he's like fan of the opera is kind of an exception where like that's his whole point but even still there's just like he was known for being he kind of like almost established the like british archetypal like you know i am a very cool but charming villain sort of deal and then but this one you can just see like he's charming but he's also like he gets sad he gets upset he gets angry that's why you like him. Yeah. Well, and I think that often in like when the villain is the husband mm-hmm. is like he's very manipulative and like trying to control his wife. And right. it's very much not that at all. And like she's manipulating him essentially because like she's just trying to get in his house and find out what he's up to. Mm-hmm. And he's like very genuinely in love with her. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's a very strange kind of thing because apparently he knew her when she was like a minor and you're just kind of like, eh. Yeah, that is uncomfortable <laughs> that they talk about how like... He knew her growing up. He was he had a crush on her when she was young. like. And there's a very clear age difference between the two of them. Like if he was like about her same age, it wouldn't be so bad. But like knowing that he was, you know, probably in his 20s when she was in their teens, it's just kind of like, well yeah he's a friend of her father's like exactly that's why I'm... yeah it, it is unco- but i feel like he's not trying to take advantage of that yeah. in the, in what we see i mean maybe when they met before it was inappropriate and yeah maybe they did that to like try and re-emphasize the fact that like you're not really supposed to like him because as if the nazi thing weren't enough but like it's maybe easy to forget that somebody is a nazi when they're not like decked out in Nazi regalia so just having this like visible age gap maybe was kind of like a way to like make sure the audience doesn't fall too hard for Alex as a character yeah yeah well and it's also interesting that they have like the other Nazis seem more evil than he does because like he yeah there's the ones that are like very 
coldly talking about arranging the death of one of them who almost gave away the wine bottle thing the only other one that does die is the one that like also looks the most sympathetic because he looks like just a you know nerdy little man yeah the way that they portray all of the bad guys in this movie is like Mm -hmm. there are the ones that you're like okay that's the evil nazi Mm -hmm. but and i don't know if maybe it's because like claude rains doesn't have a german accent so you're (laughs) like not automatically associating him with the evil germans yeah i think i read somewhere that like hitchcock gave him the option to do a german accent and he was like no i just want to do my normal accent and they're like okay fine i just i don't know if that was necessarily the right choice but it works. Yeah, and I I do think that there's like well, especially at that time too, that the audience was more likely to be more sympathetic to someone with more of a British accent than more of a German accent. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's also part of why like Ingrid Bergman's, you know, natural accent. If that was her natural accent, I haven't. I honestly don't know what she normally sounded like, but <laughs> um, maybe that's why they also kept that in there because I think the idea is that you're not really supposed to get a good read on her for until about halfway through the movie even a quarter of the way through the movie about like what her deal is yeah well and i think that she doesn't even know like as a character like mm-hmm. she's kind of trying to figure herself out because she was definitely conflicted about the whole thing with her father mm-hmm. and like that she knew that he was a nazi did not agree with that but also didn't turn him in right and is sort of dealing with that and that like her coping strategy was to just be a party girl and like pretend that everything was fine and but clearly she wasn't actually fine (laughs) (laughs) this is uh not to uh get too meta with yours and my life but this reminds me of another certain character that we both have a very notable connection with shall i say lydia bennett from ozzy bennett diaries i was wondering if you were thinking about that yeah yeah (laughs) it's it's a lot like that actually Mm -hmm. um of like that people on the outside are like wow you're being irresponsible and it's actually like no i'm just trying to deal with my feelings (laughs) and the fact that i'm rejected by my family for various reasons (laughs) yes yeah there's a lot of similarities there actually so yeah going back to trying to get around production codes there's mm-hmm. very famous scene between ingrid bergman and carrie grant that we yeah. must mention the, kiss the kissing scene because according to production codes of the time a kiss could not be longer than three seconds mm-hmm. and so uh hitchcock instructed them to just like stay in each other's arms but come up for air every three seconds so they're like they'll kiss and then they'll say a line and they'll kiss and say a line so it's a very long kissing scene but they don't actually kiss for more than three seconds continuously. Right. Which is just like genius move. I have to say like, yeah, very sneaky malicious compliance to the max. Cause like people have written about this already, but like it does end up being like, Oh wow, this is, they're really into each other at this. Like it's, you can, they're almost more, they feel more into each other for that reason than they do with, if they had just like been making out continuously for, you know 10 seconds even like it just that going back and forth like that's something you only really do if you really feel comfortable with a person and there's like not just like straight lust driving you like there's other things going on there and that really adds to establishing what this relationship has early on in the movie so i really appreciated that yeah their relationship is set up so well Mm -hmm. because like it's this whole thing of like Devlin is in love with Alicia, but 
he doesn't want to be. And he doesn't want to admit it. Yeah, exactly. And so he's like, he's like really mean to her some of yeah. the time too. Yeah, and that was what that was one of the things I was mentioning. I think before we recorded that, like, my feelings with this movie have gotten a little bit more complicated on this rewatch because I forgot that he was actually kind of mean to her before he even like needed to be, and I'm just kind of like, okay, I get that you don't think you should be in love with her but like you don't have to like insult her down to her bone right off the gate you can just like be more disinterested <laughs> i don't know yeah. it's just like he's just like he goes right for the gut on the first shot and you're like geez dude <laughs> yes he has there's so many mean things he says to her and she's just like what what did i do to you <laughs> yeah, exactly. The part when she when he finds out what her job is going to be and he comes yeah. back after they had the kissing scene mm-hmm. and she's like, oh, what do you need to tell me that you have a wife and two adorable children and this can't go on? And he's like, I bet you've heard that often enough. And she's like, what? Why did you say that? Yeah. And like, like at that point, I kind of get it because like, again, he's trying to like, you know, distance her so that she can potentially do her job better or whatever. But like even still like it was even before that in the scene like at the cafe where right before they even kiss for the very first time on screen you're like he's still saying things similar to that and you're just kind of like dude (laughs) you got issues it seems like (laughs) yeah and then he gets really mad at her after she says the the playmate line that you mentioned earlier and it's like that was that was what she was supposed to do like right that was literally her job and he's just like oh i thought you'd change it's like (laughs) she didn't want to (laughs) yeah you just feel so bad for her this whole time you're just like i mean that's again part of the point but just like oh yeah and apparently david o selznick when he was producing this movie wanted joseph cotton to play this role and i'm i think it's a stroke of genius that hitchcock got Cary grant to do it instead because like and I know he wanted Cary Grant to do it anyway, but even still, it's just like, had Joseph Cotton done this role, like Joseph Cotton's charming enough, but like, you've seen Shadow of a Doubt, you know, like when he wants to be mean and, and nasty, he can be real mean and nasty, and I think he would have overdone it. So like, having Cary Grant there, like, his natural charm kind of helps you overcome the like, just meanness that Devlin throws at her. But at the same time, you're just still kind of like, as if you step back, you're like, oh, yeah, this is just... Ah. <laughs> yeah, I do think that that's a good point that Cary Grant doesn't quite cross that line that some other actors would have of like actually being really vicious. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of see that the reason that he lashes out is because of like his inner feelings and like he doesn't want to care for her. So he's really trying to make her not like him. Right. And there's also like parts of it where you can kind of see in his eyes, I think that like even he doesn't really want to be saying what he's saying, but at the same time, it's like he still says it. So, yeah. Well, and he defends her when she's not there. Right. That's the other thing. Yeah. Cause like when he's in the room with the other, like with Prescott, who is, I think, the worst character in the whole movie, that man just, ugh. <laughs> they're like talking about, like, cause she goes there to say, like, I don't know what to do. He asked me to marry him and mm-hmm. I, don't know what to do about that and so they're like oh yeah why is she showing up here a woman like that and he like 
Devlin goes off on them and is like, hey, she's like risking her life for you guys and you're just like insulting her character. But mm-hmm. it's like, but you said the same thing to her face. So like Again, I feel like that might be kind of him trying to like feel make amends for what he feels is his own terrible actions. But again, it's just like uh <laughs> he's a very very complicated character and I think again that's deliberate, but it's just like uh. <laughs> yeah it's like you could have made things a bit easier on yourself mm-hmm. if you hadn't <laughs> been so conflicted yeah but i guess it's like maybe that's a statement in itself is like trying to like highlight i mean in a complicated way like patriotism or like feelings of patriotism at the time where it's like america and veterans and people who fought in the war like did really terrible things you know to other people but at the same time, I feel like there was also this rhetoric, especially amongst against like, you know, your Germans as opposed to the Japanese where it's like, but the Germans are still such a noble and historical people and they like, you know, deserve some sympathy from us in the end. And like, that's part of what leads into like the Marshall Plan and the rebuilding of Germany by the Western powers and whatever else. But it's just interesting that like there's an echo there of like how the rhetoric of the war kind of would have played into that, I feel like. And when you look at when you recognize as a whole that this movie takes place immediately after world war ii it's like you can really see the kind of complicated feelings of you know okay how do we treat how do we as the world move on here and you can see that kind of evolve i think in alicia and devlin's relationship at least i think so yeah definitely and it's like it not only takes place right after the war it was made right after the war too even during in parts like it was written during the war too yeah so people definitely were having those feelings the people who made the film the people who would have watched it Mm -hmm. on its first release were definitely wrestling with that Mm -hmm. and it's interesting how it reflects that a lot of nazis did flee to south america and showing that it's it's just it's interesting to watch it from a historical perspective if nothing i mean i watch it cuz i enjoy the acting and the characters and things like that but it's also very interesting from a historical perspective yeah and i think a lot of that comes down to ben hex as far as i know because he was really tapped into like all of that like he was a former journalist and so he's had all of his journalistic connections so he would have been really into like trying to make this movie feel like at from a plot standpoint anyway like really current and fresh so props to him the screenwriter for anyone who doesn't know yeah so i think that just there's so many things that really work one thing that i do think is interesting it took me a few rewatches to pick up on is that uh when they're in brazil Mm -hmm. there's the like one brazilian guy and then the rest are american people and they make the brazilian guy really clueless yeah he's like totally deferential to prescott and everything like he he immediately changes his mind after on the plot after like prescott does a very basic explanation of what's going on and you're just like yeah this does not does not make the brazilian government look good (laughs) no it's like it's very sort of like american savior mindset sort of thing and i don't i don't love that i think that's really like they could have made him smarter and more like in on what's going on instead of being like, why don't we do this? No, we're going to do it this way. Oh yes, you're right. (laughs) Yeah. And then it's just like, he disappears like halfway through the movie and like for the rest of the movie, you're just seeing Prescott and maybe one other American superior agent. And it's just like, "Ah." (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, and the guy who plays Prescott, I think Lewis Calhern, like I am used to seeing him in uh, High Society, which is a remake of Philadelphia Story, where he plays mm. the Uncle Willie character. So he plays this like really slimy uncle guy. Mm, and I feel yeah. like he, a lot of times he played like a bit more slimy character. So like, I think you're supposed to like him in this movie, but I like can't see him yeah. as not a slimy character. Well, I, I think you're maybe supposed to like him initially, but then like he's, I think he provides like a, a foil for Devlin where like Devlin clearly has reservations about this and Prescott is very much just like, nope, this is just going to happen. And like literally the last scene you see him and he's laying in his bed, like eating charcuterie and just like totally casual, even though like Devlin is, seems pretty concerned that Alicia is in mortal danger. And it's just like, this man literally does not give a crap. And you're just and like, I feel like you're really supposed to not like him at that point. Yeah. He's just like, okay, you can check on whatever you want to. And like, she's literally being poisoned to death. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, I think you should check on her. Yeah. Uh, but that's another thing that like, she uses her like partying as a defense mechanism. And she's so used to doing that, that like, even when she does need help, she tells Devlin like, oh, I'm just drunk. It's fine. Well, I think at that point, it's also just like, she's possibly baiting devlin to be like hey can you see past my mask at all and see that i'm actually really in trouble or are you just gonna like let your prejudices against me get in the way again because like i think at that point she knows that something's wrong she may not necessarily have any idea what but she's like actively trying to put up a wall against him because it's like he's been treating her like everyone else in the world has so why should she uh like let it down for him at this point and then you know it's like it's a test really is what it is and then Devlin only passes it very belatedly <laughs> yeah well and she has found out that he asked to be transferred and he won't admit it to her yeah I was gonna say because like that was one thing I noticed is like he seems to be completely like clueless as to the idea that she's aware that he's been asked to be transferred and almost like the point that he doesn't even know that he's being transferred. Like I I read from that scene that he's, he just seems like he's not even aware that anything should be wrong, that she should be treating him this way. And it's like, okay, did you actually ask to be transferred? Was Prescott lying? Like I was kind of like, Hmm, this is just odd. <laughs> like his behavior just seems like almost too clueless to me in that scene. I don't know. Yeah, well, he's still he's trying. He's trying really hard to not be into her. And because yeah. I think at the end or like towards the end, when he finds her, mm -hmm. he says like that that was why he asked to be transferred because he was so in love with her and he was trying to seem clueless in front of her. And so, yeah, there's layers. Definitely. I think that scene is one of the best acted scenes in the movie between those two. You kind of have to you see them like really playing with each other, or at least her playing with him. Yeah, I just she's just so on in every scene in this mm -hmm. movie. Like she's just so good. Yeah, she's never like the only time I could really see her say she's kind of being casual is the part where she's like after Devlin comes home and she's been fussing with that like chicken that she was trying to cook and she seems like that seems like the happiest moment she has in the movie, honestly. And then it's just like, boom, everything starts to fall. <laughs> I have this very funny memory of one time, I think in college, I was hanging out with my friend and I was saying like, we should watch a movie together. And she was like, I saw this like clip of an old movie of like somebody saying that they didn't like to cook, but they were going to make chicken. And I was like, notorious. She was like, how did you know that from that one brief thing? I'm like, well, it's, I don't know. It's a notable moment in the movie. 
that's that's such a you moment like just knowing you that's such a you thing that would happen <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah my friend at the time was like of course you would know <laughs> that was what you would know exactly what movie that was yeah. so yeah so i watched it with her then oh nice if i can pivot i have like another big part of the movie that i wanted to talk about go for it the cinematography by ted tatsloff and just like in general just like the decisions made during this movie, I feel like are unlike most every Hitchcock movie that was made before or since where there's just an intense subjectivity to the camera that doesn't really like reappear. I don't think in any other Hitchcock movie, like the, um, for example, the part where Alicia is like realizes she's been poisoned. She stands up and then the key lights drop off of Alex and his mother. And then all they look like are like black silhouettes. And like, there's this whole sequence where Alicia's like stumbling out of the room. And then it's just like all twisty and turny. And, and then not to mention the long tracking shots that happened twice, at least twice during the movie where like it goes from the top of the staircase all the way down to the key in her hand and following the cup of coffee as Alex's mother like carries it over the table and all the shots where it just like right in next to Alicia's face and you're like oh god I hope she doesn't drink it oh god she's gonna drink it like there's just so much cool stuff that goes on in this movie that's just like frankly genius in certain the ways that it just tells the story just by visuals and major props to Ted Tatzloff and his team for pulling that off because this movie like when you really watch just the images you can really tell what's going on and it's amazing yeah about the the key shot there is another earlier Hitchcock movie called Young and Innocent mm. um, which is not one that's talked about very much and there's a whole thing where like the bad guy has like a twitch in his face oh. and so they're trying to find him again and it's like this big shot of this whole like I think it's like the dining room of a hotel or something and mm. it's like this big crane shot and then it goes and it like zooms right into the the band oh. and the drummer's face and then he twitches like right oh. when it's like right on his face. It's a little disturbing because he is in blackface. Maybe that's part of the reason why the movie isn't uh, remembered very well. <laughs> yeah, but that's a very similar thing to the shot of like the entire like entryway of their house. And then it goes right into her hand and then she like moves it and you can see she's holding the key. Mm -hmm. um, so that had been used in a previous Hitchcock film, but I think it's it's even better here. Yeah. And and yeah, with the the poisoned coffee cups, they actually got like giant cups oh. to put in the shot when you see it like in close up because they didn't want the background to be more blurry. Right. Yeah. So you could see like the shots of like the big coffee cup. And yeah, you're right. There's just so many great like shots and and the lighting. And I I never know if Hitchcock movies count as film noir. I feel like some of them have sort of noir aspects. I feel like this is probably the most noir of his movies. I would make an argument for Shadow of a Doubt being a little bit more noir, but like... Oh, that's true. Still, like, I get your point. Like, this was right in the middle of the noir period, and yeah, there's definitely a lot of, like, noir elements to it. And I think it's hard to say whether or not, like, that's Hitchcock or the crews that he was working with, because those were obviously a lot of the same people who were working on a lot of these other movies, so I don't really know. Because I, I also took a class on noir in college, so, like, to bring it all the way around so like i think hitchcock movies don't always have a lot of the major elements of noir but there are definitely like some of them there and yeah this movie definitely has quite a few of them so if i had to be compared to another uh, famous noir it'd probably be gilda would probably be the best comparison yeah 
Because it's like, Ingrid Bergman is not a femme fatale in this movie. No, most femme fatale, like, they're actively trying to, like, sabotage the men for their own purposes, which, if you actually flip that idea, means that they would be really cool protagonists in most other movies. But that's beside the point. But in this case, like, the movie is happening to her. She's very much not, like, in control of the situation at all. No. No, and I think it's really cool how they show that, like, she has not been really trained to be a spy. And yet she's somehow quite good at it. <laughs> yeah, she's very effective. Like, she finds out a lot of information until Alex and his mother find out what she's up to and manage to keep her from finding things out. Which is, again, how she figures out that they're onto her is, like, they interrupt the guy who's about to say where the stuff comes from. And they also prevent him from picking up her coffee. That's what, that's the major tell. Oh, that's true too. Yeah. Because it's after that point that she actually like looks at the coffee and then looks at them and she drops her jaw and you're just like, oh, oh God, she knows. <laughs> and they know she knows. <laughs> that's a great scene because like there's the, the guy who's talking has no idea what's going on. Right. That's Dr. Anderson. who's like the Nazi who like seems to actually like try to care for her the most yeah he's another somewhat sympathetic villain character right but yeah so he's just like talking and she starts to notice that they're interrupting him and she's kind of like huh that's weird and then he like almost drinks her coffee and they like freak out and she's like oh no this is why it's yeah it's it's good it's good i think we've danced around her a bit but i also want to bring up a moment to say like the character of alex's mother brilliant <laughs> like yes as far as i've read she's like the first like real domineering mother in hitchcock canon and like they did a great job of writing her like i don't think she like fully overtakes alex in the course of the movie which is a good thing like alex needs to also stand on his own in certain ways and he does in certain scenes but there are also elements where it's like no even though he tries to stand up to her she undermines it a couple of times like the first time he stands up to her fully is when he's like I'm going to get married to Alicia and we would like to have you at the wedding. And she doesn't show up, but then like she tells all the servants to go to bed. So they come home to a dark and empty house and you're like, this woman is <laughs> something that's for damn sure. Yeah, it is because she's like jealous. And it's it's mm -hmm. very interesting to see like the progression from this to Psycho. Like there's mm -hmm. a lot of similarities in that sort of dynamic. But also like it's very funny when Alex tells her like, oh, yeah she's an american agent and and the mom's like i knew i didn't know but i knew kind of thing right. of like she knew there was something wrong but she just thought she was just a slut and like uh, cheating on him with devlin the whole time but then she grabs the cigarettes and just like does that cool trick where she like drops the bottom and then the lid next to it and then whips the cigarette out you're just like that's a cool move but anyway it is but it's also just kind of like she's so excited to be justified and she's like oh yeah this is exactly what i thought would happen like no it's not you just didn't want him to get married and you just want an excuse to have her die <laughs> yeah yeah she's so excited to be like we can kill her now but <laughs> but we have to do it subtly <laughs> Because Alex is like, I'm just going to strangle her. And she's like, no, you have to poison her gradually. Right. Because we can't tip off your friends that like she, uh, you know, sold information on us. And I also love how he he's like, yeah, the one guy really doesn't like me. And she's like, yeah, but even he wouldn't think you would be stupid enough to do this. So it's fine. Like, no one will suspect that you actually married an American agent. Right. We have been stayed by the magnitude of your stupidity, I think is the line. Yeah, it's they have an interesting dynamic. And I think it's great that they use because there aren't really any other female characters in the movie. Right. That are at all important besides 
Alicia and Alex's mother. Right. But they're both so interesting. Shout out to Leopold and Constantine, the uh, actress who played the mother. Like, apparently this was her only American movie and she was suggested for the role by the guy who played Dr. Anderson. And she was apparently like a major German actress for a long time. So, like, the fact that she got to play a role as good as this one in her only American movie was pretty good, I think. Yeah. Uh, one shot I did think was interesting is that when Alex is telling his mother about the fact that Alicia is an American spy, like there's a mirror in the background that like doubles him. And I think that's almost like an interesting moment to show like, okay, Alex has now fully been able to separate like the guy who loves Alicia from the fact that he is, you know, a Nazi and he, you know, is probably going to try to kill her. And like that separation is just really interesting. Oh, yeah. I don't know that I'd ever picked up on that. It's just, oh, this movie's so good. It's one of those movies where like, I because I've watched it like 20 times and every time when it gets to the, the parts when like Alex is starting to figure it out and mm. stuff, I like am always yelling at the screen, like, don't put the key back on his chain. Make it look like it fell on the floor. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like if she handed it to him and was like, oh, darling, I saw this key on the floor. I think it's yours. And you, I think that would you would have bought it. I think you would have bought it. Yeah, it's just like they do everything wrong there to make him really suspicious. And like that they put the bottle with the wrong year. And... Yeah, they could have just what, what would have worked is just pulling up one of the bottles from behind and moving it forward and just leaving like a gap. I don't think you would have really taken any notice of a gap. Just like, Yeah, like... they just they I mean, they panic. And it's it's fair, like because I probably if I was in that, I probably wouldn't have known what to do. Right. But now that I've seen it, I'm like, no, there's so many ways you could have done this better. I know. Oh. One other thing about uh, this that we didn't talk about but jumps all the way back to being in the movie, the opening score, I didn't notice it initially, but that opening score sounds like a romance movie score. Like, you just hear that, like, soft strings, and it feels very, like, you know, sensual and, like, field of poppies or whatever, and it's just like... And when you know what this movie is, it just feels so dissident to what it actually is, but it also could serve to highlight that they want you to believe in the love story initially, and then they're going to just like shank you in the side by like, oh, actually, this woman has to like basically prostitute herself for the U.S. government. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah. Well, and I think that Hitchcock does that a lot of like sort of playing with romance and murder or like other crimes. Right. And I think that's part of why I like a lot of his movies, even the more like romantic ones mm -hmm. is like it's it's not the way that movies typically deal with romance. And I always find that so interesting. Yeah, like uh, Truffaut famously uh, attributed him at that like big party that happened in like the late 70s at the end of his career by saying like, you respect him because he shoots scenes of uh, love like scenes of murder, whereas in France, we respect him because he shoots scenes of murder like scenes of love. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. To him, it's like all strong emotions and passions are related Mm -hmm. I think he's not necessarily wrong in that, but I also feel like he drew some interesting conclusions about that in the end of his career. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, he was, Hitchcock was a very strange, disturbed individual, clearly based on the movies he made, but also you know, there's stories of, of how he treated some of his actresses that are not great. Yeah. But I think Ingrid Bergman worked with him three times. I know she worked on him in Spellbound, and I think there was one more after this. Yeah, it was the one that took place in Australia. Yeah, Under Capricorn, I think it's called. Yes, I think that, yeah. Yeah. 
I've only seen that one once. I don't really remember it. I want to see it because I've heard some people say it bears revisiting. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll watch it again. I have seen Spellbound a few times. That movie just cracks me up. I think <laughs> it's so funny. It's like so bad. The way they deal with psychiatry in that movie is just, it's so funny now. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen it. I've seen clips, but... There's like this whole thing when like Gregory Peck has this very intricate dream oh yeah the salvador dali sequence yeah yes yes exactly it's very famous but like when they're interpreting it it's so funny they like know exactly what it means it's like (laughs) oh something was chasing you that must have to do with the name of the ski resort it's like what no (laughs) that's not how that works but it's so funny but anyway yeah so i think this is definitely her best hitchcock movie yeah one note I did want to highlight that I made, um, the champagne in general, champagne as a thing in this movie is really interesting because the first time we see it is Devlin has a bottle with him when he goes to the government office to like learn what Alicia's job is and he forgets it there. And in that moment, it almost feels like the champagne represents like Alicia's like love for him and like he kind of almost forgets that in the next scene because it's only at the end of the scene that he realizes he forgot the champagne at the government office and it seems like he has a little bit of regret about what he's just said to alicia and then later on when we're reintroduced to champagne it's the big party and obviously the fact that the champagne is like running out very quickly is like the source of tension in the scene but then you it almost becomes a double meaning because then you're like it contains what the government wants which is like you know their uranium and they're like you know that's what everyone's fighting for and then it almost also becomes a reintroduction of the idea that represents Alicia's love because that's also what the government is after because they want her to use that to like leverage Alex and so there's so much meaning baked into champagne in this movie and I really think that's just a genius writing in that level and I've really admired that on this rewatch yeah I agree it's very nice like the way that the champagne bottle is important early on and then it's like oh this is actually really important to the story Mm -hmm. I also enjoy that so Hitchcock is famous for making cameo appearances in most of his movies and he's helping deplete the supply of champagne so they'll have to go down faster yeah it's just like he just appears and after a cut drinks an entire glass of champagne in one gulp walks away it's just like yeah perfect hitch perfect (laughs) great because it it started in his like early early films when they like they would need an extra and just like not have that many people Mm -hmm. so he would he just kind of ended up being in a lot of the movies and then it became sort of a running joke Mm -hmm. of like when are you gonna see him and then in his later movies it's usually very early on because he didn't want to distract anybody from the suspense of the story but this one is is kind of in the middle Mm -hmm. so that's that's fun yeah and um one other thing i noticed speaking of the scene where devlin has forgotten the champagne there's a lot that's been talked about where this movie where drinking just in general not just champagne but in general is like really important to the story like you know the fact that alicia's drunk in the first party where she meets devlin then she drinks the orange juice that he gives her and etc 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 alicia only takes a drink during that scene after devlin is really fully just like broken her and she walks off of the balcony into the apartment behind a curtain that is see-through so we can see her in sort of a silhouette and then that's when she picks up a bottle of wine and pours a glass for herself and like drinking is almost a part of alicia's mask and like i think that maybe somewhat unintentionally alex and his mother play into that and that's why 
they poison her coffee. It's like the mask itself is killing Alicia in multiple different ways. And again, like I keep going back to my notes and most of these are just like impressed by the writing and directing choices. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, and there's also the scene when they have like recently arrived in Rio, but don't know what they're doing there yet. And they're at like the, the cafe. outdoor cafe. Yeah. And she's like, Oh, I don't need any more to drink. And then he's like insulting her and she's fine. Right. Like, oh, I'll have more to drink now. Cause she's like, yeah, I've changed. I'm, I'm actually becoming more like sober and enjoying my life. And he's like, well, yeah, how long is that going to last? Exactly. Like, obviously you're going to go back to your old ways. She's like, fine, I'll have another drink. Mm-hmm. Uh... <laughs> It just goes back to Devlin makes a lot of uh, mistakes in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. He's so mean to her. I know. It's just, uh, like, why? <laughs> but he's also nice to her, too. It's not like he's yeah. always horrible. Right. But, like, the times where he's mean, it almost feels like he doesn't make up for that in the scenes where he's being nice. <laughs> yeah. Which means I kind of don't buy the romance at the end of it, which maybe is also entirely the point. <laughs> yeah. I think that the scene when they're in the cellar and he's like so casual about it uh, she's like freaking out I was like what if they come downstairs she's like oh that would be unfortunate and yeah. that is very Cary Grant like that's yeah. how he is in all of North by Northwest and yeah. so I, I think that's very funny that he he does get a little bit of the like making light of the situation Cary Grant that we know and love he also kind of does that in the staircase scene in the end which I think is part of why he's able to get out of the house is just he's so almost disturbingly laid back about the situation where everyone else in the scene is like either invalidated by the you know her Alicia in this case just being like you know poisoned and then Alex and his mother are basically just frozen in shock where Devlin's just like all right this is gonna happen let's just keep walking let's just keep walking do I have to pull out my gun and start shooting let's just keep walking it's just like does he even have a gun <laughs> that's the other thing too is he's like what <laughs> He's like pretending he has a gun. Does he have a gun? We don't know. Yeah, we don't. He's like very much in control of the situation, even though like he has every reason to be freaking out. Yeah, and he's just like, no, I'm just going to be casual. I belong here. <laughs> I also really enjoy when Alex tries to get into the car and he just like reaches over and locks the door. <laughs> he's like, sorry. That's your headache. It's just like, Bye. like that's again, that's, I don't, I don't think Joseph Cotton could have played that. I only think Cary Grant was, was able to just play that like complete, like utter inability to like give a fuck at all. Uh, <laughs> it's just so, so fun. Also uh, going back to the, how they're walking down the staircase, they had actually built a separate longer staircase for that scene so that it takes longer for them to get to the bottom and increasing the suspense. And that's another thing. I think that like in, a lot of Hitchcock movies, the end feels very rushed mm -hmm. and like like he was building up suspense for the entire movie. And then when you finally get to the end, it's like, OK, and then it's the end. We, yep. we don't know how we're going to deal with this. And I feel like Notorious is one of the best Hitchcock endings. Definitely. I think um, going back to North by Northwest, though, I think the North by Northwest feels very much in that way of like, oh, it's just the end now. Like there's the match cut. But even still, you're just like. Okay, that was the end. Like, yeah, it's the same thing of like they didn't know how to wrap it up. Like, he doesn't know how to do denouement. You right. know, like it's just like here's the climax, the end. Yeah, and I think that that the way they made the staircase longer is like there's still tension at the end, mm -hmm. and then it doesn't feel like, and we just didn't know how to end it. Like, it's very much like you know exactly what's happening after the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. They didn't need to show that, and it's just sort of like. 
okay, Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman got away. Yep. Claude Rains has to go back and face his Nazi friends who now know that something major is up. Mm. I like that they have that little part of like, there's no phone in her room. Like, this mm. is like, they're starting to pull apart his story and they're like, yep. oh, we need to talk to you now. And it's like such a great ending. And that slow walk back up another staircase into like yes. this imposing facade of his house and then Roy Wood's amazing score that just... Mm. Yeah, it's so good. So good. <laughs> and also that was another thing I thought of when, with regards to the staircase, is there's a series of shots in this part where Alicia's like fading from the poison after she realizes where... When she gets back into the house from like the outdoor sitting area that they were at or whatever it is, the first thing she looks at is the study where the Nazis have been hanging out the whole movie. And then she turns and looks at the staircase. And I almost like read into that maybe too much that it's almost like a choice between hell and heaven where like, you know, Nazi hell in the study that's got black doors and the staircase, which, you know, is always a poignant metaphor for like the stairway to heaven or whatever. And later on, of course, Devlin, you know, goes up there to rescue her and bring her back down to the place of the living. And then notably when Alex goes back in the house, he like is facing the direction that we that's been established is towards the study. And I just feel like there's a lot going on in there that if you want to do like a Christian read of this movie, it's there to be read. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. I don't know. I just like that came to my mind immediately. And then maybe it was just like, eh, could be too much reading into it, but whatever. And then the other last note that's a major note here that I had was um, when Alicia has come back to the American embassy or whatever it is to announce that Alex has asked her to marry him. Like for most of the scene, Devlin's standing over by a mirror and he's got the noir blind shadow on him. So like going back to your idea of it being noir, like there's a very clear like noir symbol right there. Yeah. Well, and also, do you know about the movie Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. Oh, okay. So it's a very fun movie where they like put clips from old noirs into <laughs> like, but it's like Steve Martin and oh yeah, he's like doing a noir sort of parody. Um, but there's all these clips from noirs, and they have some clips of Notorious Ooh. in that movie, and so it's it's pretty fun that the, like you get to see ingrid bergman interacting with with steve martin <laughs> <laughs> i'm especially imagining some of the lines that are in notorious like her telling to steve martin and it's like oh my god <laughs> yeah they have they there's like two moments and also they have it so that she poisons him uh <laughs> and there's like the from the party at the beginning you see carrie grant's back yeah and they and they show her verse out and it's steve martin yeah, the back of Cary Grant, the front of Steve Martin. So they have like a little bit of that in that section. And then he says something like, you put on your fancy black dress. And then the next shot is of them like getting ready for the party in the house of like when she's like going to steal the key and stuff. Mm. So that they, there's a clip of that in there, too. So I'm like, OK, well, the people who made Demi Noir Plaid clearly think that Notorious is a film noir. Yeah, I know it's it's a it's a debate that many scholars have had for a long time, and I don't think it's really gonna we're not gonna be able to solve that debate right here. <laughs> yeah, I think that with film noir, it's not really a firmly defined thing. It's just mm -hmm. sort of like a, a feeling, of mm -hmm. like it's 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 a mood. Mm -hmm. So it's also people describe it as a style or whatever else. And it's just yeah, like, it could be all of those things or none of them. <laughs> 
Yeah, because people weren't specifically making the movies to be like, this is going to be categorized this way. Yeah, it's it's the retrospective assignment that the people gave to them. Yeah, exactly. So I usually watch it during Noir Vember, which is part of why it has made it. Because it's like, I'll usually either watch it for Cary Grant's birthday or for Ingrid Bergman's birthday or for Hitchcock's birthday. And then also watch it in November for Noir Vember. So I usually watch it once or twice a year. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. When did you watch this? Like, what's your watch history of this movie? Because I've noticed, like, this is just a thing that in podcasting, um, you haven't really talked about your history of watching movies when you have guests on them. So Yeah, that's true. I usually don't because we we talk enough about other things. But yes, so I watched it for the first time in 2004. And then I watched it in 2006 and 2008 and 2009. And then I think that might have all been before I had a copy, so I was just getting it from the library. Mm. And then I watched it once in 2011, twice in 2012, once in 2013, twice in 2014, once in 2015, twice in 2016. There's a pattern. <laughs> yeah. And then I broke the pattern. I didn't watch it for a couple of years. And then I watched it twice in 2019, twice in 2020, once in 2021, and twice in 2022. So... Yeah, I watch it usually once or twice a year. Um, I don't know why I didn't watch it in 2017 or 2018. Maybe you were tired of seeing Cary Grant be mean to Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> yeah. Which I wouldn't blame you. Well, they made another movie together called Indiscreet, which I don't like as well. But they're also kind of mean to each other in that movie. So I'm like, couldn't they be nice to each other? Yeah, it's weird because apparently they were really, really good friends in real life. So it's just like... Yeah, I don't know. The... uh key prop that they had there's a story that Cary Grant apparently took it from the movie set and had it for 10 years and then gave it to Ingrid Bergman in the hope that it would uh, bring her good luck because apparently it had for him and then at the same big party that I talked about was where Truffaut tributed Hitchcock uh, Ingrid Bergman was the MC and she had uh, apparently kept the key on her that whole night and like gave it to Hitchcock at the very end of the ceremony in hopes that it would also bring him good luck and I think it was Peter Bogdanovich who was also there or something. One of the people I saw in that same documentary interview that he then turned to Cary Grant and was like, is that the key? And Cary Grant was like, shoulder shrug. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story regardless, but <laughs> it's just safe and true. <laughs> they, just, they just took a random key. It's like, this is the key from the movie. It's like, you wouldn't know. I mean, apparently it still had the same brand on it. So there's that. That was the one thing that was really distinctive about the key and the lock in the movies that you could very clearly read the brand on both of them. So yeah, that was another cool shot too. Was when Alex is at the bottom of the staircase, going to the, towards the wine cellar, and walks straight up to the camera, and then he lifts his hand up, and his hand is perfectly in focus, in frame, and you can see the three keys spread out, missing the important fourth key. Yeah, that was really cool. And then he just casually it's like, you know, whatever his butler's name was, Joseph. I think they've they've we've served them enough champagne, haven't we? They've got wine and whiskey, don't we? Yeah. I do wonder what Joseph thinks about everything that's going on, because he seems to be kind of oblivious to the fact that he's serving Nazis, because he seems genuinely concerned about Alicia when she's being poisoned. Like, I don't think he knows the like political stuff that's going on. I think he does know that the people he's serving are Nazis, but I don't necessarily think he knows that Alicia is a spy. That's fair. That part I don't think he knows, but I think he knows most of what's going on in the movie. He just doesn't talk about it. Yeah, I could see that. I do love like a good like, you know, semi-passive servant character just because they provide like a great character for all the audience to bounce off of where it's like, if I were in that situation, I'd probably laugh, but they aren't, so I have to. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. So, yeah, that's just lovely little background stuff like that. Yeah, I think this is just an incredibly well written, acted, and shot film. And it's like, what what more could you want? Right. And the fact that it's not as well known as like some of Hitchcock's other masterpieces is a real shame because it really is a masterpiece, especially for this time period in his uh, career, I think. Yeah. And it's fairly early in like Ingrid Bergman's American career after Casablanca, which is probably her most famous movie, which Mm -hmm. I think is so funny. There's this quote from her of like, I made all these other movies that were so much more important and people only ever want to talk to me about that Humphrey Bogart one. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, like that movie didn't win Best Picture, I think, right? It did win Best Picture? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. But I also like it's interesting when you watch it that like her character is not like she doesn't get any of the iconic lines besides the play at Sam line. Like most of them are Humphrey Bogart and Claude Rains, Mm -hmm. who is also in that movie. Um, But yeah, it's like her character is not nearly as well developed as like this one it's kind of a a similar sort of thing of like people being in love with her but also being like oh but you're a a slut although i think she was less of a slut in in casablanca but like yeah she doesn't get as much interesting stuff to do so i could totally see why she didn't like that movie as well as some of her others because like compared to her character in this like or any really or most other movies she was ever in yeah exactly it's like her character doesn't get much Mm. in that movie the famous line that she gets to say is the one that everyone misquotes. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, confession, I've never actually seen Casablanca. I know I have. What? I haven't. <laughs> it's not in my top 40. How many times have I seen Casablanca? Okay, I've seen it 10 times. So fairly largely outside of the potential you could have made for the countdown. Yeah. I've seen it half as many times as I've seen Notorious. But yeah, it's good. It, it's a good movie and it's a classic. Like, I mean, I feel like everyone should watch it at least once actually at least twice because i didn't pick up on a lot of stuff until i rewatched it but Mm. like with notorious i'm like everyone should watch it like as many times as possible because i'm still discovering new things about it that i hadn't appreciated in my earlier watches like the mirror thing that you brought up i still haven't picked up on so it's like i gotta watch it again and look for the mirrors i feel like it's just like my professor in college had said it really well it's a masterpiece that's kind of forgotten and it's a shame that it is it's like possibly one of Hitchcock's best constructed movies and better even than some of his more well-known ones and like I feel like I don't know why this movie hasn't stuck around in the popular consciousness as much as say North by Northwest or Vertigo like it's just it may not be like as uh surreal or flashy or like you know experimental with its structure as any of some of those other movies but it just does the structure that it has like impeccably and as we've talked about, like you, you, the more you dig into it, the more you can pull out of it. And it's just like, I don't know why it hasn't lasted. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that uh, it'll probably be one that not as many of my listeners are familiar with. But, but uh, you should be. should be. Yes. <laughs> so watch it if you are listening and you haven't seen it. Especially if you're a Hitchcock fan. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because like, like Vertigo is one of his most praised movies. And I rewatched it recently and i was like but the story isn't actually very good like i don't yeah. actually like vertigo i yeah, i think I that agree. it does really cool things with color and like that sort of thing but like as a story i don't like vertigo i agree 100 <laughs> percent. yeah it's like 
really this movie and i it's fine if people like it but it's like usually so high on on people's lists of even just like movies in general like it's it makes it really high into when people do like the best movies of all time lists and i and like no one talks about notorious in those contexts yeah and i don't really understand why like i can see with like like psycho and the birds were like doing different things than had been done before and it's also like those are horror movies which is like puts which allows them to be genre movies in a completely different way than most of Hitchcock's other stuff yeah so I think that those get talked about in a different conversation and I understand that and obviously I love North by Northwest not to like spoil that that's going to be talked about on this podcast but yeah so I I understand why people talk about that a lot and uh Rebecca was the only best picture winner that he directed so I can see why but people also really talk good, about that. So. Yeah, yeah, and it's good. And that was his first American Hollywood movie. film. Yeah, I will say that not to flex, but like I've seen all of Hitchcock's American films and many of his British films. I haven't seen all of the older ones, but there's only two that made it into my top forty. Part of that is that a lot of his movies sort of lose their appeal after you've seen them a couple times because like the whole point is the suspense and Mm -hmm. it can feel really tedious when you know where it's going of like oh they're just dragging this out artificially to make you wonder how it's gonna happen Mm -hmm. and once you know how it's gonna happen it's like okay i don't need to watch this anymore but notorious is definitely suspenseful but I feel like it gets even more enjoyable when you know where it's going because then you can focus on just how layered the characters are and their relationships without like worrying like are they going to be okay because you know how it ends and then also the other technical aspects that we talked about that you wouldn't necessarily notice at first glance but like the cinematography the music the writing the structure like you can't really appreciate all of those things until you've watched it multiple times and it's just a movie that really holds up in that way and that's not to say like some of those other ones don't, but like you said, a lot of Hitchcock's movies, like they're not as rewatchable because of the fact that they are so, to kind of like paraphrase Ryan Johnson, they're like puzzle movies almost. They're like movies where the whole point is you don't know what's going to happen at the end, but once you do, that's it. You know, the tricks, you know, the turns, but Notorious, there's so much more to appreciate. Like everyone who worked on this movie was just, very good at their job (laughs) yeah well and a lot of it too is that like hitchcock really liked to manipulate the emotions of the audience Mm -hmm. and was sort of like very fascinated with how films can do that and i Mm -hmm. think he was really good at it but again it's like once you know what's coming it's harder to feel that emotional Mm -hmm. ride as well Mm -hmm. and i think that his movies that i enjoy more have more to them than that of like that the emotions are deep enough that you can still feel them even when you know where they're going exactly and enjoy the film again from a technical perspective from a character perspective even when you aren't quite as into the emotional aspects of them exactly yeah and i think uh specifically at least for me alex kind of jumped out on this one in terms of like viewing his character and emotional like wavelengths that he was going through because at least at first, he's kind of like just like this dumb puppy that you just like you can see like the joy in his eyes and just like all of that and everything. And then like he slowly, he surely like slinks into being like a more 
manipulative and crafty villain but even still i never really felt like that scared by him i was more scared of his mother than i was of him because he for the most part is just like following his mother's directions and his mother is the one who's really like coming up with the whole scheme yeah well you can really see that like not to just keep bringing up psycho but like (laughs) the line between claude rain's character and anthony perkins character and psycho is very interesting because Mm -hmm. like then i mean i'm gonna spoil psycho do people know how psycho ends it's a very old movie i hope they do i'm assuming people know like his mother is dead and so he's like playing his mother himself and his mother but i think like you do kind of feel bad for norman bates when he's himself Mm -hmm. that he's being manipulated by his mother who is really him (laughs) um but but it's a very similar thing so i I like I find this movie fascinating as like sort of a precursor to Psycho mm-hmm. in in those terms yeah. that like having a sympathetic villain who's being manipulated by his mother, which is a little bit, I don't know, it's a little bit sexist or something, but it's also very Freudian. <laughs> yes, there is that. Um, Claude Rains is just a fantastic actor. And I feel like among people who like old Hollywood clearly like he gets a lot of praise but i feel like he's not quite as remembered as a lot of the like flashy movie stars of the time and i'm just like anyone out there who's not familiar with his work should like be seeking out claude rain's movies because he's Mm -hmm. fabulous in everything i've seen him in yeah i mean i've mostly only seen him in other in horror movies like uh the invisible man and the fan of the opera but he was perfect in those so yeah he he plays villains he plays not quite like the movie star leading man but he's he can play more sympathetic characters and uh and also his character in casablanca is fascinating so like mm-hmm. since you haven't seen it like you should watch casablanca for claude rains alone mm-hmm. uh because his his performance and just his character is so interesting because he's a horrible person but also uh somewhat sympathetic similar to notorious what do you know very similar to notorious again (laughs) and ingrid bergman is also in that movie um (laughs) but he doesn't he doesn't interact with her nearly as much in in casablanca because he's not married to her (laughs) (laughs) but yeah also oh this is another thing that i wanted to bring up is that claude rains is very short and ingrid bergman is very tall yeah that was one thing i thought was really cool was like Claude Rains is very clearly a short king in the movie, but anyway. Yeah, but they they wanted to like even it out a little bit more. So there's definitely scenes when they're standing together where he was like on a box or like mm-hmm. there's one scene when he walks towards her and they like built a ramp so that it would look like he was closer to her height when he got next to her. Probably the one where like she does the key pass behind his back. I would imagine is that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scene. Yeah, when he comes up to her and is like starting to kiss her. That is really funny too, the way that he like goes for her fist and just like yeah yeah that's that's good hitchcock suspense right there Mm -hmm. is like because she's holding the key in one hand and he like opens her hand and kisses her palm and he's about to do the same to the key hand and she just like grabs him into a hug and then passes the key across hands behind her back and then kicks it under a chair yeah oh it's so good so well done and it's like why was she so good at that but then she didn't think like maybe i'll just throw the key on the floor and make it look like it fell off his chain instead of putting it back on his chain after he's noticed it's gone speaking of that uh scene though like that's the cover of the criterion edition of notorious oh uh, nice passing scene so that's pretty cool okay 
I just have it in a Hitchcock collection. Nice. Damn, how many movies are in that thing? <laughs> there's only, I think, oh, there's eight. But it also has, like, little, like, information about the movies. It's like a little notebook. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a good collection. It has a lot more of the, like, movies that are still kind of remembered, but lesser known. I mean, Rebecca's in it. But besides that, I mean, it also has that Young and Innocent movie I was talking about. Mm. And The Lodger, which is kind of considered his first Hitchcockian movie. The Lodger's good, yeah. It's only his third movie, too, which is really impressive. Yeah. Oh, that movie really holds up. Definitely. What I'm saying, if you're listening to this and you're not familiar with Hitchcock, (laughs) is that uh, there's a lot of good choices out there. It's not just the ones that are the most well-known. He made a lot of movies, and some of them are not actually very good, and some of them are very, very good. Very, very good. So it's like, when Hitchcock's good, he's amazing. When Hitchcock's bad, it's kind of painful sometimes, but uh, you can also make fun of them, like with Spelldowned. Exactly. (laughs) Um, it seems like we just done a lot of wandering around trying to find the end and we're just like I mean it's like Hitchcock didn't always know how to wrap up his movies so uh, we're having trouble uh, wrapping this up but uh, it's just it's just fun to, to chat with you about yeah. this movie and other Hitchcock movies <laughs> I could just talk about Hitchcock for a while Part I, one like project that I've thought about embarking on is like trying to watch through like all of his movies consecutively and sort of paying close attention to the evolution but I don't know if I'll ever actually do that that also does sound kind of painful like you were saying because there are ones where you just try to you would try to watch it and you're just like oh that's that I can't watch this this is so yeah yeah like I, I don't I can't think of a specific one but there I feel like there's one Hitchcock movie I've seen where I just like tried to watch it and it's just like oh this is painful to get through so yeah yeah and there's some that is just like okay that was fine yeah which i think is true of most directors in their careers they don't nobody has like a career that's only masterpieces it's like you know he was trying things he Mm -hmm. he experimented with things and sometimes they worked really well and sometimes they didn't and i think that that's admirable that's what you should do like if you're gonna make movies you should take some risks Mm -hmm. this was one that definitely paid off this was a very very well done movie i don't know that it was one of it wasn't one of his more risky movies but uh well it was one of his more daring i would say in terms of like the with the kiss at least like he really dared the censors on that one that's true it really when you look at the plot like it could be made now like people would make a movie like this now it would have a lot more nudity in it probably but like it's it's a plot that sounds like it's from a at least post Hayes Code era right. period when because there's it's just a lot of implied sex mm-hmm. in this movie and violence. Yeah. But I think that Hitchcock did that a lot. And like a lot of his movies, there's implied homosexuality that I don't know how he got past the censors. Yeah, especially Strangers on a Train. That one like that one's obvious in a lot of ways. And rope. Yep. Like they only have one bedroom. Exactly. These two guys that live together. Like there's definitely some queerness in his movies. Which is why there was a whole class about it at my college, and that's why I took that class. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. There's there's just a lot of of characters that seem not straight in his movies. <laughs> and this this isn't a great example of that. Although I do feel like I don't know, there's something about Claude Rains that just seems kind of queer coded to me sometimes which is weird because he's very much in love with a woman in this movie but uh... yeah no I, I can see what you're saying like it's that same kind of refinedness that Hitchcock always seemed to like associate with queerness like the another example is like when we watched Shadow of Doubt in this class like there was a large 
implication that there was an attempt to queer Uncle Charlie and like make him seem like a queer person. And I'm like, I don't know that I buy that, but I can see that there's this idea of Hitchcock where like the more classy and refined you are, the more queer you may or may not be. And it's just like, it's an interesting parallel that he seemed to draw in his career. So, but yeah, I see what you're saying about Claude Rains. And uh, yeah, other than that though, like, I don't think there's any way you could do a arrow ace reading of this movie <laughs> to keep it the theme of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. I mean, maybe some of the Nazis are, but I don't really want to. <laughs> and who cares about those? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to go with that. Yeah, no, it's, it's very, it's, it's very romantic and sexual, but I think the element of, like using sex mm-hmm. is definitely like I think that as someone who took a long time to to figure out my sexuality and not quite understanding that I didn't because you it's hard to understand that you don't experience something you know like exactly yeah no I get it. I think it's easier to figure out that you're gay because if you're feeling attraction for someone like you can tell but if you don't feel attraction toward anyone it's harder to know that that's a thing it's almost like you feel it almost feels like you're expected to have a magnet in your hand and then you just like you suddenly turn your hand around it's like oh there's actually a magnet there (laughs) yeah so i think that that just like sexuality in general has kind of fascinated me in a way because i don't understand it and so like seeing people using sex in ways that are separate from actual attraction Mm-hmm. has been always kind of interesting to me in a way. Yeah. So I think that that is part of what has intrigued me about this movie from a younger age. Seeing movies like this of like being, I guess I can't say it's super open, but like it's pretty open for a 1946 movie about yeah. like that it's about sex. Um, but also that like particularly the way that Alicia is using it to find out information from Alex is like she's not attracted to him she's just like pretending to be and I think that sort of like pretending to have attraction for people resonated with me in a way that I didn't consciously realize I mean it it has echoes of like what you were talking about with Chicago like yeah that same idea yeah exactly and those I like didn't unpack why those movies fascinated me until like later so it could be you know i'm assigning meaning that wasn't actually there but i think it makes sense to to be like i don't understand attraction but i can understand like pretending to have attraction (laughs) and like especially when you're using it to get something important and like in chicago they're using it for themselves but like here they're supposedly using it for the greater u.s benefit and it's just like they yeah. never really like i mean they step they get the idea that there's like maybe an atomic bomb could be made by out of this but like they also seem to imply that the nazis are having trouble actually like putting together a bomb so like they never really established that it's like that pivotal that you know they just uncover the source of what's going on in the you know the uranium and everything because like she gets all that information and Devlin is like making notes of it in his head. And it's clear that that's going to be solved by the end of it anyway. But the whole idea that, you know, there's danger for the greater United States just steals immaterial, which almost makes this movie even more tragic where it's like, this really didn't even need to happen. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's unclear. Well, and they call it, they call it a MacGuffin mm-hmm. where like there's with the wine bottles it's like they're there to further the plot but they're not actually important in and of themselves and so like the plot is more about like her Mm -hmm. and like it's in the context of like they're trying to help 
stop the Nazis and whatever, but like that's not actually that important to the story. Right. You know, it's like it is, but it is not the point. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so we don't actually know if they were going to succeed in making a bomb if she hadn't interfered. And we don't really know if they all get caught or what happens after that. But that's like kind of outside the scope of the story, which is right. interesting to be like, you wouldn't ever really describe this movie as being like about the Nazis or like stopping the Nazis. It's like about this specific person and her journey and like falling in love with the agent and things like that is like very interesting layers there. It's also just an interesting time capsule of like a very short period of time where the United States's interests were more concerned with Nazis than with Russia because the Cold War hadn't really started yet. And had this movie been made like even a year or two later, it probably would have been Russians that they were trying to trick. But in this case, it's like, you know, Nazis on the run, which is just a very, very interesting, like little time capsule of when this movie could have been made exactly in this way. Yeah, because I think that soon after this, the American government decided they didn't really care that much about Nazis anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's part of what has led to a resurgence of them in recent years. It's like it was never really fully dealt with. It was just kind of like, okay, that's not important anymore. We're going to fight the Russians now. Yeah. And also not to mention that, uh, you know, a lot of the Nazis who would have had the capability to do such a thing were just eventually just actively recruited by the United States. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> interesting. <anyway>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're right. It is, it is an interesting time capsule of like that, that brief period when it's like, no, we're going to try and kill them and not try and work with them. <laughs> So, and again, going back to what I was talking about with like the interesting relationship that uh, Alicia has with Alex and and Devlin and how that kind of mirrors the interesting relationship that the United States had with Germany and German people as opposed to the Japanese people after the war. It's just like this interesting like, oh, you have things I want, but you're also kind of not a good person, but I want you. It's like. It sounds more creepy when you put it that way, which is exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. And on that note, I think we've talked, and we've gotten <laughs> off on tangents multiple times trying to wrap this thing up. We should probably stick the landing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Nazis are bad. Let's exactly. end on that note. Yes. Nazis are bad, and the Americans choosing to work with them after the war instead of executing them all was a terrible decision. <laughs> yes. But anyway, Nazis are bad. This movie is good. Watch Go watch it. it. and thank you james for talking to me about it yes thank you for having me and uh thank you for sending us off on multiple tangents that we didn't need to go on but i still enjoyed nevertheless (laughs) i am not so responsible for them i don't want to make it sound like you're the only one responsible (laughs) (laughs) well you know it was fun to chat with you i don't know how many of the tangents i will keep in i might edit some of them out for time but uh you know hopefully people enjoy listening to them Thank you so much to James for all of your insights about this movie and for your tangents. And thank you to everyone else for listening. Happy end of Pride Month! Remember that queer people don't disappear or stop being queer on July 1st. We're always here and we always deserve the same rights as straight cis allos. To all my LGBTQIA listeners, stay proud! 
Anyway, as Pride Month comes to a close, so too does my run of guest episodes, so next week, the Rewatch Rewind will be back to just me, when I'll be talking about the only movie I watched 21 times, which will make it the first non-tie on this list. That movie is also from 1946, but has a significantly different tone from Notorious. As always, I will leave you with a quote from that next movie. You don't like coconut? Say brainless, don't you know where coconuts come from?